I've got some serious separation anxiety today. <laughs> Timothy had separation anxiety when Paul left him in Ephesus alone to deal with this large church city of 225,000 people, probably at a very large church, a lot to deal with. We know timid, uh, Timothy was having a difficult time there, probably thought about leaving, which is why in the first chapter Paul has to stay. Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Paul... Because he loves Timothy, he writes him a couple letters near the end of his life here. And his main uh, point in this first letter is, is this. He is helping Timothy to set and keep his course. He's trying to help Timothy and thus help Timothy's church that he's leading to set his course and, and keep his course. Well, a lot of different directions he could go, a lot of different ideas of what's right and wrong to do in the church. Maybe a lot of different programs, and this leader's doing that, and this leader's doing that, and this teacher's saying this, and this elder wants to go this way, and, and these deacons think this, and the, the members are getting upset, and we've got to keep them happy. Just a lot of different directions that he could go, and any pastor knows this. As a pastor, you can become a sort of, you get caught up in a, in, a, in a democracy of the church where you're just kind of representing people and trying to appeal to different people. And there can be a temptation to listen to a, a lot of different voices. And a pastor like Timothy needs to be able to, if he's sitting in an arena and there's you know 15,000 people screaming and shouting, he needs to be able to pick out the voice of Jesus on the other side and hear that above everything else. And so Timothy is saying, this is what that voice is saying. This is what God wants you to do. And it's pretty simple. It is honor and glorify God. If you are a Christian, that is your course in life. That's it. Everything else is, is, is underneath that and falls beneath that. Your purpose, the reason God made you, okay, the reason God saved you, is that you would live a life that is honoring and pleasing to God. When you wake up in the morning, you're trying to figure out Ephesians 5.10. Find out what pleases the Lord. Whether you eat, whether you drink, 1 Corinthians 10.31, do it all for the glory of God. So we're existing not for ourselves, we are existing for God. So if you're a Christian, that is your responsibility, that is your role. Simply that. And as a collective people, as a church, it's the same thing. We're coming together and discerning what, according to God's word, with the help of the Holy Spirit, What is going to honor you, Lord? What is going to please you? What would you have us do? What is this supposed to look like? How should we structure ourselves? What should we preach about? What should we talk about? What should we, how should we organize these groups? What should our fellowship be like? What should the content of our church? And on and on and on. God, what is it that will bring you honor and glory? So today, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, Paul introduces, it's a theme in all of his writing, but he introduces it here in 1 Timothy, this essential ingredient to honoring God. In other words, you cannot honor God if you do not have this. It will be impossible for you. It's contentment. Contentment. It is not contentment to love God and to worship Him and to honor Him when everything in your life is going as planned. 
and everything in your life is going well. And everything you touch turns to gold. You might have some like I've never had that season. Some of you, you've had that season. You're in it right now. Now, that's not where contentment comes in. Contentment comes in when you are able to honor God and glorify God and please God when everything in your life is working against that. When everything in your life and the circumstances, the painful circumstances in your life threaten to lower God in your mind, curse God, be angry with God, be frustrated with God. Now he's not being honored by you. Now he's not being worshipped by you. Now he's not being glorified. But contentment, contentment is key. William Barnes has a little saying he wrote where he says, Contentment is a great feast. Contentment is a great feast. The one richest requires the least. In other words, what he's saying is is contentment, which when you're content, it's like you're always sitting at the banquet table, right? It's like it's always a feast. You're always content. You're always happy. You're always full. You're always full of joy. It is a feast when you are content, no matter what's going on right around the table. But here's why that person is content. The one who is really the richest and the most content is the one who requires the least. So it is counterculture because we would be taught to believe that you want to be happy? You want to be content? You want to be satisfied in your life? Then you need more. And you, you need what you want. And you need to accumulate And you need to just move from one thing to the other. You need to figure out what is it that would make you happy? What would make you happy right now? Now go and get that. How can you achieve your goals? How can you actualize your potential? And the lie is that that you will be content when you get there. You will be satisfied and you will be at peace. And some of you have done that. And you've you've climbed those ladders and you've, you've struggled up that hill, right? And you've gotten the trophy and you realize that you still weren't content. You still weren't satisfied. And you still didn't have any kind of really sustaining peace within. Contentment it does not come when you accumulate more. Contentment comes when you require less. And some of us spiritually, we're just super high maintenance. We just need so much. And life needs to go a certain way. And friends need to treat us a certain way. And the stars need to align. And if that's not happening, we're messed up. But to be content means that no matter what is going, no matter what kind of storm I'm in, okay, no matter how the circumstances and no matter how life is playing out, no matter, no matter how painful it is, contentment is the key to honoring God and worshiping Him and loving Him, doing what I've been created to do, and therefore I'm happiest when I'm doing it. Contentment is key. Unless your life is just going to go great, you're never going to have any problems, issues. And it's not going to go that way. It's not going that way for you right now, is it? There are things in your life right now that are threatening to steal your joy. And so Paul says, Timothy, if you're going to keep this course, and if you're going to help your church to keep this course, you've got to remain content no matter what circumstance you find yourselves in. And, And here's what is 
difficult for us to even swallow when we read today's text. When Paul talks of being content in any circumstances, he addresses that to first century slaves. The implication for those of us who are not enslaved, who are not in that kind of a life situation, the implication for us and the call for us to be content is great. When we see Paul go after those in horrible life situation and telling them to be content and to honor God in the midst of it. If we're really, though, going to get this, we're going to need to pray because we we need this is why we pray at the beginning of every sermon, because we are a dependent people. And we don't think that just the words of, of a man or even just reading words on this page is going to do anything significant in our hearts unless God, through his Holy Spirit, does something in us. So we go to him and we ask him to help. Let's do that together. Our Father in heaven, we do ask for your help this morning. We are thankful that you've brought us together. We're thankful that you've given us life and you've given us a warm sun and you've given us clean air and you've given us food to eat and water to drink, places to sleep and clothes to wear. We're thankful for these things, God. You also know, Lord, that we're a people who can be really insatiable and when we have a little, we just want more. You know we're a people who tend to love created things more than the Creator, who tend to not thank You for the gifts or, or think that they're from our hand or think that we have some sort of more control than we actually do and we think ourselves worthy and deserving of things that we don't. And God, You know that we, we worship ourselves and we, we praise ourselves and we forget that, that we would not be here today if it weren't for your grace and many of us are here today and we've been saved by you and called out of confusion and frustration and and darkness and you've you have shown us the glory of your gospel the good news that you are a god who loves his people so much that you were willing to die for us that you suffered in our place to end one day, to end all suffering. And that Jesus, out of His great love for us, took the punishment that we deserve for our sin on the cross out of His love for us. And that You are moving everything, Father, toward a day where there will never be injustice again, there will never be sin again, there will never be evil again. So God, I pray if there's people here today who who reject this or who do not believe this or who find foolishness in it, that today, that today, God, it would become wisdom. That their eyes would be opened. That they would see that they themselves have been the fools. And you are the wise God. And we would do best to submit to you, our great and gracious creator. So we love you. We thank you. And we ask these things 
in the wonderful name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. If you're using one of the Bibles that, that we've got there, it's page 852. That's where you'll find First Timothy uh, chapter 6. Let me just say one thing. When you look in your Bible, uh, it, it's going to look a, a chopped up, today's text, and, and, and we don't want it chopped up. It, it looks sort of like verse 1 through 2a is, is one section, and then a new section begins in verse 2b and goes through verse 10, but I think it all is, is connected here. So that's why we're reading chapter 1 through verse 10. So do remember that uh, these, uh, these headings that you have in your Bible, you see the little headings, little bold headings. Those are not infallible. Those were added by uh, translators of the Bible just to, to help us, uh, you know, sort of organize things. Uh, here's another cool thing. The, the sections that fall underneath those bold headings are called, technically are called pericopes. And I say that because that is just a, uh, a very fun word to say. So I would encourage you to just whisper it to yourself throughout this message. And as you travel home and maybe as you're going to sleep tonight, just say that word over. And you just say it with me, actually, on the count of three. Pericope. Really, just try it. One, two, three. Pericope. Yeah. That was sort of cultish, but we won't do that again. Uh, so anyway, this looks like there are, uh, you know, like we're, we're dividing up pericopes. I'm going to say that a lot, uh, but we're not. It, it's one pericope. Um, so we're going to look at verses 1 through 2, and then hopefully, uh, Lord willing, can show how this all, this all connects. So let's remember what, what Paul's doing. He's been on a, a specific track within this letter since chapter 5, verse 1. Where, remember, if you've been here in weeks past, you know, he's talking about how we are to relate to one another in the church. Okay, he's, he's talking about honor and how we are as God's people to honor one another. And he talks about all the different relationships that exist within the covenant community. And that's one way of describing us as a church or a community of people. We are a covenant community. A covenant is a commitment. It's a promise. As God's people, we are in covenant with him. Okay, he has made promises to us. We've made commitments to him. But as well as members in a church, we are in covenant with one another. Okay, if you're a member at Veritas, you know that we call it covenant membership. That when you become a member at Veritas Church, you actually sign something where you commit. You're committing to the people here. This is my family, and I commit to, to live for them and to love them and to serve them. So we are people in covenant with one another. We are really a family. The Bible says we are a household of faith. And like any family, where we're going to be dysfunctional in some ways. We're going to have problems. We're going to have issues. We're going to miss each other. We're, we're not going to relate to each other as well as we should. So we need instruction. They had problems a couple thousand years ago. We still have problems today. So Paul goes through and he says, okay, here's how you are to honor widows. And here's how you are to interact with widows. And, and here's how you are to um, uh, live with, with the elders in your church. And here's how you are to treat older people in the church. And here's how you are to treat your peers. And here's how you are to treat younger people in the church, right? And on and on and on. And he describes these different relationships. Well, today... Today, he addresses the relationship between slave and master. Now, that's a relationship that none of us find ourselves in. None of us are here today, and we can put ourselves into that context and apply this to a relationship that we have. In the first century, Ephesus, it was very different. But not only that for us, not only do none of us find ourselves in that relationship, but frankly, that is a relationship that we find reprehensible. You ever had a hard time? Have you studied the Bible much? Have you ever had a hard time when you come to passages where 
Paul addresses slaves. And he gives them instructions about how to live their life. And have you ever wondered why Paul doesn't maybe say something else? Why Paul doesn't speak up? Well, why does the Bible address slaves, but it never addresses slavery? It's sort of like the elephant in the room question when we come to these, these passages. And of all the people that Paul is going to call to be content, really? Slaves? You're going to call slaves to be content? But look, verse 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves, or if you have a New American Standard or New International Version, it says under the yoke of slavery. That word has a lot of negative connotations for us. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So he gives slaves a command. And here's the command. He says all Christian slaves. He is talking specifically to Christian slaves. Slaves who are in the the church. Who would be there on a Sunday gathered where Timothy's going to read this letter. Okay, All Christian slaves. Period, you are to honor your masters, is the command he gives. Christian masters, non-Christian masters, doesn't matter. That's what verse 1 is saying. All slaves need to honor their master. And then he says something in addition, if your master is a Christian. So you had in this church, slaves and their masters who had both come to Christ and were in the same church, sitting in a worship gathering together. And so Paul looks here through Timothy at the slaves and says, okay, some of you, all of you are to honor your masters. Some of you have Christian masters. For some of you, your master has become a Christian. You owe him even more honor and more respect. And what does he say? He says, because he's a fellow believer. Because he is your brother. He is beloved. Now notice what Paul does not say. And it's, it's offensive to our senses. He's not telling the masters to honor and respect the slaves. Right? He's not telling them, hey, hey, do not mistreat your slaves. They are your brothers in Christ. They are fellow believers. They are beloved. He... He has the, it almost sounds like the audacity, right? To go to the slaves and to say, Hey, listen, don't think that because your master is a Christian, that that now means that you don't owe him anything and you can, you can, you can leave or that you can mistreat him or you can start some insurrection. He says, No, no, I'm not saying that. He is a Christian. You should love him as your brother and you should continue to honor him and respect him. This is what Paul's instruction is to these slaves. Now, as Christians today, I mean, when we hear slavery, partly because of of some dark history of even our nation, first and foremost, though, because we're Christians, we hate slavery. We hate slavery. The idea of dehumanizing people, 
the idea of because of uh, like what we have had in our country, a difference in the color of skin, right? Racially motivated slavery where people are dehumanized and they're reduced to something less than a human being and they're seen as property. The idea that, that one man would, would own another is totally despicable to us. And, and we have sort of a, a collective shame as a, as a nation and some regret, though maybe we weren't individually guilty. We still have sort of this guilty conscience. We would agree. That's why we're, we're so sensitive to this issue. Because we know that slavery like that, it, that system flourished in our country from the 17th to the 19th century. It flourished here. And the, the mindset, the racially prejudiced mindset, that flourished well into the 20th century. I mean, we're not even 100 years out of that as a nation. So, so this, is a, this is a hot button. This is a sensitive topic. This is something that is very dear to our hearts. We've got a lot of baggage with this issue. So the elephant in the room, when we come to Paul's text... For us as a people, I think, the question I want to answer, because I think if we don't, it's going to be an obstacle to even hearing what Paul is saying, is why does Paul address slaves, but he doesn't address the issue of slavery? You should ask that question. As a Christian who hates slavery because, and here's our reason for hating slavery, right, Christians, we hate slavery because we believe that every human being has been created in the image of God. And so everyone is an image bearer of God. And therefore needs to be, their life needs to be valued. Because they are a reflection of God created by Him. Right? Our framers said as much when they said that we are created equal. So, so we believe that. We are biblically informed because God has created all of us. There is no difference. We are all image bearers of God, bearing His image in different ways, and therefore we value human life. And the dehumanizing of people or a system of slavery that we know is reprehensible and despicable to us. So Paul... Why are you going around the issue? Why are you talking to slaves? Why aren't you bringing up the issue of slavery? Why aren't you addressing the the masters? Why aren't you calling for a mass release of these slaves is the question that, that we have. Why does Paul call for slaves to submit? Why doesn't he call for slaves to revolt? Why doesn't he call for some sort of a rebellion or some sort of insurrection? I mean, at the very least, why doesn't Paul, in all of his writings, why doesn't Paul take the opportunity to promote the abolition of slavery? I mean, that just seems missing from the New Testament pages. So that is the elephant in the room question, I think, that if we just kind of glaze over, we're not going to hear a lot of the things that Paul is saying. So some things that might be helpful for that, that might be helpful. One is, I think it'd be helpful for us to make a clear distinction between slavery as we know it and the kind of slavery that was going on in first century Greco-Roman society. 
Because it was not right, but it was very different from what we think of, I think, when we think of slavery. First of all, in the Roman Empire, at the time that Paul is writing this letter, there are 50 million slaves. 50 million slaves. At the worst, in the Americas, there were 4 million slaves. So at the time that Paul writes this, there are 50 million slaves. That was one-third of the population of the Roman Empire. In a city like Ephesus, it was bound to be even greater than that. So if you can imagine, as you look around and imagine that we were the church that Paul was writing to in Ephesus where Timothy was pastor, one in three of us at least, maybe closer to 40%, but at least one in three, as you look around the room, would have been classified as a slave in this culture. All different reasons. All different reasons why people were slaves. Some were kidnapped. You remember the story in Genesis of Joseph? Right, who was sold to bandits, and then they sold them to Potiphar's house. Okay, that kind of thing. That was taking place. So some were kidnapped by bandits, and they were sold into some sort of harsh slavery. Some were prisoners of war. Some were criminals. This was a way for paying for their crime. Some, this was common, were enslaved, very common, were enslaved for indebtedness. It was very common for someone to voluntarily... Okay, enlist themselves into an enslaved position in a household because they owed some sort of great debt that they could not pay. And so the way for them to pay off the debt was to become a, to belong to, to work for an individual who would become sort of their employer. And so that was very common within this system of slavery in the first century. This was interesting. Some were sold into slavery by their parents. Some teenagers were sold into slavery by their parents. Which must have been a huge motivation for obedience in the first century. (laughs) If you don't change your ways. Some were born into an enslaved household. Uh, We know historically, though, that slavery in the first century... Greco-Roman society in the Roman Empire was actually often a preferred state of life. Preferred to freedom in the Roman society. It brought with it a certain amount of security. Okay, where my needs are going to be provided for and I'm going to be taken care of. As well as many slaves enjoyed high positions in significant households. So it doesn't mean that the mistreatment of slaves was not going on. It doesn't mean that where the mindset existed of one man owning another, that that wasn't wrong. It doesn't mean any of that. But it means that the scene that Paul is writing to is not the scene that many of us think of when we think of slavery. It was not a a small population of people who were brutalized. That's what we think of. It was one-third of the population, many to most of which had voluntarily entered into this sort of a relationship. Some of them would even be doctors and government officials. So very different from what we uh, associate with slavery. But still, sounds like something is missing. I think, at first glance when Paul teaches. Why does Paul address slaves and not 
slavery? Why doesn't he call Christians to social action? Why doesn't he go a different road? There's much to say here, by the way, that we can't get into. But there is much to say here and elsewhere about how the Bible teaches Christians to affect change in the culture and society they find themselves in. And what we find is not so much an outside working in as it is an inside working out. But I think these four points are helpful. Kent Hughes and Brian Chappell have a commentary on 1 Timothy. And they give some helpful speculations about why maybe Paul does not go after the issue of slavery and addresses slaves. So before we go on, just let me rattle through them real quick. I think they might help you. They helped me. Number one. One reason might be that positive reforms were underway in regard to Roman slavery at the time that he is writing. We know historically that that is true. The slavery scene was changing dramatically. Things were already moving in a good direction. So maybe Paul is just saying, okay, let's just ride this out. Things are going in the right direction. We don't need... At the time he's writing this, 50% of slaves were freed by the time they were 30 years old. So some good reform was already taking place. So maybe that's why he didn't address it. Number two. Another possibility. An assault on slavery would have wrongly labeled Christianity as subversive. And Christianity is not subversive. Number three. Maybe the radical brotherhood and equality explicit in the gospel would sound the death knell for slavery, bringing its eventual demise. In other words, you don't need to call for, talk about all the implications of the gospel and every social implication about what that means and what needs to end and what needs to start and how that affects this. The Bible just doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't address every social implication. It just goes, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And as people know the gospel and understand the gospel, society, culture will change. You understand, when, when, when slavery was finally abolished in Britain, okay, some of the men who were most influential were men like William Wilberforce, and he was influential in that movement because he was a man informed by the gospel. It was his gospel conviction that we are all image bearers of God. We are all sinful. We are all deserving of wrath, but there is freedom in Christ. It was that conviction that led him to then pursue the abolition of slavery. He didn't need a verse, right? He didn't need a verse saying, hey, you should abolish slavery. So maybe that's why Paul doesn't address it outright. Or for the church is not, and this is true, primarily concerned with social reform. The church is concerned with spiritual reform, and this is true. But let's go back to the command. All Christian slaves honor your masters. This is what Paul teaches these slaves to do. And then he says the reason why. So that. Always pay attention to that phrase when you see it in your Bible. Because you're going to get a reason. You're going to get into God's head, if you will. And you're going to understand his purposes on on a deeper level. Okay, why are you giving this instruction to slaves to honor their masters why and he says so that the name of god and the teaching may not be reviled paul's purpose in calling christian slaves to honor their masters is no surprise god's glory remember this is the purpose of all things it is god's glory it is so that god would be honored 
Now, we may think we have a better way. I mean, why couldn't God be glorified in calling Christians to revolt and put a stop and an end to slavery? Couldn't God have been glorified? Wasn't, was God glorified when, when slavery, in different parts of the world, is slavery has been abolished? Is God not glorified in that? I, absolutely. God is honored in that. God is glorified in that. But here, God clearly is not going, going that route. Apparently. Obviously, at least in this setting, God is glorified more through these slaves submitting to their masters than through these slaves revolting against their masters. We can't get around that. Clearly, in this text, in this day, God has chosen that He will be more glorified through these slaves submitting to their masters than He would be through those slaves revolting against their masters. Let's take a step back and look at that that principle more broadly so that we can apply it to our lives. Because because that that principle where where God is saying, I'm going to be glorified, I'm going to be honored more. If these slaves will be content, and honor their masters than I would be than if they rebelled against their masters. I'm going to be more glorified in that. Now, if we take that a step back, we, we see that the Scriptures teach right, that God is often pleased to leave us in painful circumstances. I mean, that, that is just, that, that, that's one of those truths that, does not, that we've got to work through. Because we're taught that, no, if somebody loves you, they make a big deal of you, and they give you everything you want, and they, they sing songs about you, and they, and they give you money, and they give you awards, and they compliment you, and they, they, they encourage you. And we think that that's loving me, and what's good for me is making much of me and making my life easier. That's what being good to me is. So it kind of turns it on our head, though, when we say that God is good and God is loving And it often pleases God to leave us in painful circumstances. I mean, He is sovereign. If you've been taught, as is common today, that there are just certain things that God takes His hands off on and He's just kind of winded the clock and He's letting things play out and He's giving Satan some wins and, you know, it's a give and take and He's really not in control of... That's just a lie. That's not true. It's evident from Genesis to Revelation that our God's hand is on everything. His motives are always good and pure. But His hands are behind even the painful circumstances in our life. And as a Christian, we have to accept that God is often pleased to, when we're in a painful circumstance, to leave us there for a while. Because God is glorified through our enduring Painful circumstances. And this is contentment. First Peter two, 
18 through 20 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Do you hear what God just said? God says, okay, this is a gracious thing. This is God speaking through. This is a great, God said, this is beautiful. You want to know what I think is beautiful? You want to know what brings me glory and what honors me and praises me and truly reflects me to the world? God says, this is a beautiful thing. People, I know you've got a lot of ideas about what is beautiful and what is not beautiful, but God is our standard of beauty. So what God says is beautiful, it is beautiful. He is the one who has created all things. And so God here says, this, this is beautiful. When, when someone does this, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What he's saying is God is glorified, God is honored. This is a beautiful thing. When someone is in a painful season of life when they are suffering maybe even unjustly and they are sorrowful but they are at peace they are content because they are mindful of God he says what that person is saying is God is so great do you hear that God is so good God is so great God is so enough that all hell can break loose down here in this lifetime, and I'm good. Amen. I'm content. I'm satisfied. I've got joy. I'm happy. I'm not falling apart. Now, when someone does that, God is saying, when someone lives like that, God, that's like maximum glory for God. The same thing with Sarah, you remember, and Abraham. Where she was enduring her husband. You remember Abraham? He made some pretty big mistakes with his wife. Remember one time they went into a town. And he's looking at his wife and she's apparently very attractive. She's like 90, so it's... But anyway, a hot 90. And they go into this town. And he's worried that, you know, the, the king, the leader here is going to you know, the mayor, that he's going to want to take his, his wife. And, and in order to take his wife, he's going to say, well, I've got to get rid of the husband in order to make that cool and legit. So he's a fierce for his life. So you remember what he did? Let's go in and pretend that you're my sister. And then you remember what he does with his sister, wife? He hands her over to become a part of this guy's harem. Now that's why in the but, but what does she do? You see that she's she's honoring her husband, she's respecting her husband, she's submitting to her husband when he says, Go on, she says, Okay. I mean, just ridiculous, right? But then God later we get commentary in the New Testament where God says, Sarah, beautiful. Do you remember that? He says, She is a beautiful, beautiful woman. Do you know why she was beautiful? Because God was so great. God was so enough that she could put up with a deadbeat husband. Really? It was seen as beautiful that she submitted to him and called him master. Because we all know what a screw up he was. And yet this life wasn't everything for her. 
She was a content woman. We've got a lot more to say on that, especially in verses 6 through 8. But where Paul goes next is verses 3 through 5. And we see that there are, we know this, there are teachers in Ephesus who are not teaching this. Paul has a lot to say about these teachers. Paul has no problem just blast. If Paul had a Facebook account, I mean, his wall would just be ripping these teachers apart. He has no problem letting everybody know. He has just like thousands of friends and he's just posting, he's posting names of people. Saying, stay away from this guy, and when I come into town, I'm going to drag him out of church. I mean, this is the kind of guy Paul is. Remember chapter 1, verse 3, he first started describing these guys as those who were teaching a different doctrine. And here he describes them again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, different is, is, a, is a dirty word in your Bible. In today's con, you know, culture, it's, it's okay. People say things like, oh, that's, inter- that's an interesting perspective you have on that verse. I have a different Point of view, and by different they mean demonic and wrong and foolish. Okay, oftentimes teaching is just called different teaching. Or we've got new perspectives on Paul. We have different translations of the Bible, where we've got a really smart group of guys like the Jesus Seminar who come together and look at all Jesus' words and say, "No, I think we should cut that out. I don't think he really said that," and just sort of arbitrarily restructure the Bible. We've just got a different angle on things. Stay away from different. Seriously, if you're trying to sort through this, okay, if you're a new Christian especially, don't read everything you can get your hands on. Find somebody you trust and respect and say, what should I read? Because you will inevitably drink from a toilet if you don't do that. So different, different doctrines. No, we want the doctrine that has been taught for 2,000 years, handed down from Jesus Christ to the apostles, to elders, preaching it from pulpits for 2,000 years. We don't want anything new, nothing innovative, nothing cutting edge. We want God's Word, right? So he says this, if anyone... I mean, he just blasts them. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So he says that about their teaching. It's a good test for teaching. If it doesn't line up with the words of Jesus Christ, and if it does not promote godliness in your life, then it's probably not from God. He goes on to describe the men who are teaching this. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. The New English Bible, translate this, he is a pompous ignoramus. You might know some pompous ignorami in your life. They're, they're, they're conceited, they're, they're, they're arrogant, um, they're very confident, and they understand nothing. Is there a worse combination? Confidently ignorant. Arrogantly Foolish, loud, and dumb. So they're teaching, they're winsome, they're giving messages, extremely confident. No, this is what the Word says. This is the truth. This is a greater knowledge that God has given me. Totally confident and completely wrong. They under, Paul says they understand nothing. Not, he doesn't even say they've got like a Sunday school degree. They just understand nothing. But they're very confident with it. 
They're pompous. He has an unhealthy, literally says sick. He's saying these teachers are sick in the head. He has an unhealthy or sick craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. You've either been that person or interacted with that person. And you've told them, like, you are sick. You joked, maybe. Like, you are sick. You just like to fight. You just want to argue. You just want to quarrel. You just want to, you just want to have foolish conversations about words. You don't want to talk about what it actually means. You don't want to talk about the gospel. You want to know what I think, and then you want to just, right, promote the opposite perspective. Do you know people like that? They're not interested in knowing what the truth is. They're just interested in arguing and quarreling and fighting and and sounding smart to people. But just because you have a great vocabulary, just because you've got a lot of degrees, just because you've been successful in the world, that does not make you wise. And a seven-year-old can be wiser than some of those men if the seven-year-old knows the gospel. So he says... And then congregationally, this has five results that he names, the way it affects the church. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. Does that that sound like, like good core values for a church? Can you imagine being a part of a church where this is going on? Where it's envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people. Have some of you been a part of a church like that? You're, like, you're driving to the church like a huge mushroom cloud above it. And you go inside and it's just awkward and uncomfortable. Or maybe you've been in that and you were part of it and it changed and turned into that while you were there. And maybe it started because there were some teachers that were like this who brought some different doctrine and started planting little seeds of doubt in those who were young or foolish or new, newly converted or whatever. And the landscape of the church changed. And pretty soon, this is just what, it's a bunch of backbiting. Okay, it's a bunch of, oh, good to see you, brother. And then it's driving home. I can't stand that guy. And these kinds of things are just going on in the church and nobody knows where anybody stands. And it's just, it's just a big mess. And that threatens to totally undo Timothy's church. So Paul is just calling these guys out again. And then finally he says, this is like rock bottom. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And then here's how bad it can get. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. It is rock bottom when one gets to a place where they see being godly and being holy and honoring God and obeying God as a means of getting something we do not obey god to gain god's love for example godliness is not a means of gain you can look at a church and you can see a lot of people on the outside being godly but there are very different reasons why some people are godly Some people are godly as a means of gain. They think that by being godly, maybe they think of God this way, they're going to gain something from God. You understand that we, this is the gospel, that we we obey God because God loves us. We don't obey God in order to get God to love us. Godliness is not a means for gaining something. Other people will be godly and, 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 and look a certain way and behave a certain way in a church, not because they're trying to gain something from God, but because they're trying to gain something from other people. 
It's not to please and honor the God they love. It's to, it's to gain a reputation. And it's to get pats on the back. And it's to get, to get people approving of them. And it's to get themselves in certain circles. And it's this thirst that they have for people to look up to them. And there's all different motivations that are all sinful because godliness. That when, you, when you get to that and that gets exploited in your life, this is like rock bottom. Specifically, these teachers, he's talking about financial gain. There are some who are living a certain way and looking a certain way, hoping that they can get hired on and get a paycheck from the church. He says when a teacher has gotten to that point, he is depraved in mind and he is deprived of the truth. He's describing an apostate, someone who is, is acting like a Christian but is not a Christian and has walked away from Christ. He says, stay away from this. This is the opposite of contentment. The opposite of being content with the circumstances that God has in your life. The opposite of that is, oh, I'm going to be godly and I'm going to behave a certain way and I'm going to look a certain way to get, to get what I want because I don't have enough. I don't have what I want and I want more. And so I'm going to look a certain way so that I will get what I want or I'm going to love God. This is, this is the prosperity gospel. Not that God is who we get. And God is the ultimate prize, but the stuff that God is going to give you is what's dangled out in front of you in the prosperity gospel. Yeah, love God and obey Him. And if you're godly enough, and if you're holy enough, and if you're faithful enough, God is just going to rain down right material, physical, monetary wealth. That's what the prosperity gospel teaches. And it's what these who were depraved in mind and deprived of the truth were teaching. That godliness is a means to getting something. Godliness is gain, he's going to say. Godliness is not a means to something else. You do not love God to get something. You love God because God has loved you. It's motivated by gratitude, not fear. It's because we know the gospel and recognize and accept how good and gracious God has been to us. We'll come back to 6 through 8, but look at verses 9 through 10. He describes the, these greedy, discontented, covetous people. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. That verse gets misquoted a lot. You've probably heard that. It does not say that money is the root of all evil. Some of you grew up thinking that money was the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Money can be used for good. Money can be used for evil. But those who desire it above all other things and who just want more stuff and want more money and want more possessions and want more trinkets and want more of what the world has to offer, that's who Paul is talking about. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The language he uses there is gruesome. It literally says they have impaled themselves. Like they're committing, they're committing spiritual suicide with their craving for more and more stuff. 
and they end up impaling themselves with many griefs. Proverbs 28.20 says, A faithful man will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. So living life, this is the opposite of contentment, which we're going to come to next. Living life where it's never enough, and I always need more, and I'm dependent on so many other things other than God, is a life where you will have total disaster in this life and destruction in the life to come. If you want a life that is, that is comfortable and is, is, is full of, of physical and material blessing, you have, and if you call yourself a Christian, you have chosen the wrong religion. Because Christianity never promises any kind of success. Christianity never promises any better position in the world. Nothing like Christianity is not some karma where, okay, so it's just, if I, it's like tipping the dominoes. If I do good things and I'm a good person, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come around. No, Christianity doesn't teach that. Christianity says, you don't do good things so the good things will happen to you. Do good things because God has done a good thing to you. And he, he loves you. But Christianity is, is this. Obey God, live a good life, but this is going to hurt. This is going to leave a mark. This is going to be painful. And so when, when, when Christianity is promoted and, and God is, is, is portrayed as this God who, who just wants to shower you with all of these material blessings and, and God just wants you to be happy and God needs you and God wants to move you to Granite Bay and this is, these are the desires that God has for your life, you get totally disappointed when you find out that no, actually, remember, Actually, it often pleases God to leave you in painful circumstances. Do you think that when you're in a painful circumstance that God is just running around like a chicken with his head cut off in heaven trying to figure out how to get you out of that mess? Do you think he's just waiting for you to have enough faith? think he's just waiting for you to say a prayer the right way? You think he's just waiting for you to stop this or to start this? No, God is pleased. Christians, out of his great love for us, God is pleased to often leave us for a while in our painful circumstances. For our good and for his glory. What about the contented? Verses 6 through 8. Right, if you look back at chapter 1, when he's talking to slaves, honor your masters so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Okay, what's the kind of life that... What's the kind of life that's going to honor you, God? It's going to preserve your name and your greatness. And, and that's what he's describing here in verses 6 through 8. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. What do you require? How much do we require? 
What does it take for us to be satisfied, to be content? He says, listen, you, you are, you bring nothing into the world, you take nothing out, right? He who dies with the most toys does not win. He just dies with a lot of toys. And then someone buys them off Craigslist. That's what the bumper sticker should say. I mean, if, if eternity, right, is this line, you're not to discourage you. But, I mean, your life here on this earth is just, just a blip. It's just, it's just, a, just a vapor. It's just, you just need a, you need a, it's like a little dot. You need a magnifying glass to even see it. And, and, to, and so to live that little short period of time as a collector, just after contentment and stuff and, and things and, and relationships and reputation and um, accomplishments and, and worldly success and whatever it is that you're after that's not just God and His glory. He thinks you live a life like that and you just, it's just a foolish life and it's just going to bring disaster in this life and in the life to come it's just going to bring destruction I mean, you brought nothing into this world you take nothing with you right but my, I've, I've seen all my children but i'm not waiting to see you know you know peyton come out with something it's just him he's he's the blessing he's the treasure i'm not waiting to see if a rolex comes out around his wrist or something oh cool that's lux for money nothing like that and when he dies the same thing he's not taking anything with him in other words what he's saying it has no eternal significance no eternal significance whatsoever and it's foolish to run after these things so he says be content be content wherever god has you so you have people in this church, if you can imagine, he's addressing these two people, and they're, everybody's outwardly godly, but one says, okay, I'll be godly, but it better pay off. That's the discontent. That's the con- godliness as a means of gain. And you may be that person. Okay, I'll be godly. I'll follow these rules. I'll do this. I'll put a smile on my face. But it better pay off for me. Okay, I'll tithe. I'll give my money. But it better go down the way that televangelist said in the TV show. And I heard him. He gave his last 500 bucks. And he would get home, open his mailbox, and there was a check for a billion dollars. So I'm going to give to get. So there are, there are those. There are those. Who, they're godly on the outside, but I'll do this because of what I get. And, and then there are those who are content. And then there are those who, like Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs defines contentment like this. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That is contentment. That is how 
God is honored. That is how God is glorified. When you're going through a painful circumstance, when you're suffering, even unjustly, when you're suffering, but you are still clinging to God and hopeful in God and resting in God, God is glorified and God is praised by living that way. And he's writing this to slaves. Think of whatever condition your life is in, whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever suffering that you're going through right now, you are not a slave. You live in a free country. That's something most likely you will never even experience. And Paul's words were to them in that circumstance, in that horrible circumstance. He's saying, listen, guys, if you can do this, God is going to be so honored and so glorified. I mean, it's going to be made up to you. And get this, it's going to be made up to you a million times on the other side in the new country. So don't, don't worry about that. The the blessings in heaven are going to be way sweeter because of what you've suffered here. But if you can make it through this, if you can get through this circumstance and not, not bail, but hold tightly to God, He is so glorified in that. He will be so honored. Your life will be a sermon. And the sermon that it will preach is, God is this good. I don't care what happens. I don't care how the election goes. I don't care where the world is going. I don't care what circumstances come my way. It's going to be okay because God is good. Now, sometimes God will change your circumstance. Sometimes He will bring a miracle. Sometimes He will heal you. Sometimes He will sell the house. Sometimes He will give you the job. Sometimes He will restore the relationship. And God can be glorified in changing that circumstance. But listen, this is, this is how this works. And when people are watching and people who don't know Jesus are, are looking and they see that, there's a degree of glory that God gets. But you've heard what people say. They often dismiss it. Well, it's just coincidence or it doesn't necessarily mean it's God. But you know what people can't dismiss? When your circumstances don't change, but you are content. That cannot be dismissed. And when they ask you, what, how, how, why, why aren't you shaking your fist? Why aren't you cursing God? Because you know I know and I believe that my God is faithful. He's made promises to me that I believe and He has manifested those promises in my life. He has shown me over and over and over again how everything in my life is for my good and for His glory. Now, one time has it been disproven. My God has a perfect track record, eternity past, eternity future. That's why I have peace. That's why I have hope. That's why I'm okay. That's why I'm not crumbling. That's why I'm content. Because every Christian knows that the most loving thing God does for us is leave us for a while in painful circumstances. Have you been through things like that in your life? If you have, you need to share that with 
younger Christians. Who are on the threshold of a fire. Who can feel the heat. Who are starting to feel the burn. And God's not putting the fire out. And there is no way around. And they're wondering whether God is really good. And you you can tell them. I've been through that fire. And I tried to grapple for anything and everything. But one thing remained steadfast. And that was that Jesus Christ had a grip of my hand that I could not shake all the way through. And I don't know how he did it, right, Christians? You know this is your testimony. I don't know how he did it, but I love him more today than yesterday. I value him more. I need him more. I treasure him more. I know he loves me better than I knew he loved me a year ago before I went through this. I don't know how it's possible, but I think I love God more because of this. Because He left me in this painful circumstance. Because you have learned the secret of contentment. You have learned that you will only be happy. You will only be satisfied as you are bringing God glory and following and serving Him and not chasing the things of this world. It says, godliness with contentment. That is gain. Two just concluding Statements, one in regards to our position and one in regards to our purpose. Really saying with more emphasis what we've already said. Number one, in regards to our position, it would be good for us to remember when we study a text like this that all of us are slaves. You are a Christian, you are a slave. What that means is that you have voluntarily, as a Christian, have said, I exist not for myself. I exist for God and for others. And this is not about me. I am enslaved to others. I am enslaved to God. His will, not my will. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 9.19. He said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant literally a slave of all. I've made myself a slave to all that I might win more of them. Vertically, we are enslaved to God. Horizontally, we are enslaved to others. It is not about me. It is about God. It is about my wife. It is about my children. It is about my church. It is about my friends. It is about others. You see the enslavement in Ephesians 5 where Paul says, Husbands, is that you live for your wives. You are to give yourself up. Give yourself up for her. Lay down your life for her. You exist for her. You have children. There is an enslavement to the good of your children. I exist for the good of my children. I exist to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
I exist to bring honor and glory to God by teaching them and loving them and instructing them and caring for them and nurturing for them. I exist for others, like Paul says, a slave of all. I exist for my brothers and sisters in Christ to consider others as better than yourself in humility. We're all slaves. We talk so much, right, about what we deserve and about what we're entitled to and about what, we're, what our rights are. We forget that in Christ, we have no rights, only mercy. Do you think that he gives you the good things that he gives you because you have a right to them? That wouldn't even be love. It would just be compensation. It's love because it's mercy. It's grace. We serve one another like this. John 13, when Jesus is with his disciples and he washes their feet. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. We are to serve one another. Do you know who would wash feet? Someone beneath a slave in that culture would wash feet. And Jesus said, I have washed feet, so now I want you to wash others' feet. Now, we're not going to do some creepy foot washing service. It's not what it means. (laughs) I don't know if you've been a part of those. It's awkward and uncomfortable and really weird and taking it way too literally. But we are to serve and to love one another and to lay down our lives for one another. And we are to do that because Jesus did. Mark 10, he does the same thing in verses 43 through 45 where he calls us to serve one another. And he points to himself. Jesus Christ laid down his life. He gave himself as a ransom for many. So too we should understand that we are enslaved to one another to love and care for one another. Position number two, purpose. We are all called to be content. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, we are called to be content. God is, remember, God is glorified, often more glorified in His people, enduring circumstances than in His people, changing circumstances. We are a people who who can endure and even welcome painful circumstances because we have this ability in Christ to rise above those painful circumstances and endure and endure well. We can be like the apostles. If you remember where they they came before the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and uh, they were going to kill them and Gamaliel said, hey, we might want to be careful here. Do you remember what he said? He brought all the Sanhedrin together. He says, I'm not so sure we should kill them. I mean, if this is of, 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 of God, then we don't want to mess with them. And if it's not, it's just going to die out. So I don't think that we should lay you know, a hand on them. And you remember what they did anyway, though? They just, they just beat them. They beat them within an inch of their life. But then do you remember what the apostles did? This is contentment. Do you remember what they did? They, they left the beating and they were singing. It's just... It's mind-boggling. It's revolutionary. They left singing. And do you remember what they were doing? They were thanking God that they had been counted worthy of receiving a beating for believing the gospel. 
That's contentment. Where everything, everything that Satan would mean for harm, we can turn for good because we see it all as coming from God's good, fatherly, gracious hand. And so no matter what, we're people saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Titus 2, 9 and 10. Again, to slaves, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He says, okay, you've got this doctrine of God. You've got this belief. You say you believe the gospel. He says you can live in such a way that you adorn that doctrine. You can make it attractive. You can make it appealing. You can make it look beautiful to the world. He says, you know how you do that? Contentment. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in. It is hard for us to stay put in the middle of these circumstances. It is hard to tell the... It's hard as a pastor. It's hard to tell an employee who is under a cruel employer to stay put, that God may be glorified. It is difficult to tell uh, grown children who have really dishonorable parents to try to figure out a way that they can honor their parents. It's difficult. It's difficult to tell uh, a, a wife who has a husband who has abdicated all his responsibility to honor and respect her husband and stay put. And I often am tempted to say, just leave. Get out of there. Get out of that mess. That's not what God says. God's word is, do you see that I mean to be glorified through your enduring this painful circumstance? That in the end of this, you will love me more. Do you see, Christian, God says that the greatest thing, the greatest thing that God can do is to reveal to you how good he is the greatest and most loving thing that he can do. And he does that often by leaving us for a while. We must be content. I'll close with reading Psalm 27, 4. Psalm 27, 4, David says this. He describes one thing that he wants. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of things that I want. But I want to want one thing. And if you want this one thing, you will always be content because you will always have this one thing. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you've made.
and we thank you for revealing yourself to us, the work that you've done in our hearts to open our eyes and minds, the, the words that you've had written down to reveal your, your truth to us, your character, truth about us, the truth about you, the truth about this world, the truth about sin. Thank you, God, for opening our eyes to this. God, we ask that in the rest of our time together that you would be glorified and that you would be honored. Incline our hearts toward you and cause us even now to walk in your ways and to be thinking about things that are pleasing to you and saying things that are pleasing to you and making decisions that are pleasing to you. You know, God, that we're quick to be indifferent and quick to rebel and quick to go our own way. So we pray that you would constrain us and keep us from that. God, we love you. We give you all praise and glory and honor. And we do pray this in the great name of your Son, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.